13. Turkish camel, where to? German officer, Egypt. Turkish camel, guess again. German cartoony theater in the field illustration, the English theater in the field, with the permission of French and Kitchener. Hicks's operatic company went from London to the front and played before the British soldiers. Illustration, the German theater in the field, Major Walter Kirchhoff of the Royal Opera House. Lieutenant Hall Wagner of the German theater. Dispatch rider, Carl Kluing of the Royal Playhouse. From Lustige Blader, Berlin. English cartoon trench amenities illustration, from Punch, London. British Tommy returning to trench in which he has lately been fighting. Now temporarily occupied by the enemy, excuse me any of you blighters seen my pipe? Italian cartoon Quo Vadis. The Gutter Snipes a London family scene illustration, from Megendorfer Blader, Munich. A favorite theme of German cartoonists is England's supposed mortal terror of Zeppelins. English cartoon The Dissemblers illustration, from Punch, London. Emperor of Austria, now what do we really want to say? Sultan of Turkey, well, of course we couldn't say that, not on his birthday. German cartoon Lord Kitchener wants you. Willy nilly German cartoon A shaky affair English cartoon The Return of the Raider Italian cartoon What is there inside? Illustration, from Lucino, Rome. The words that the observer has uncovered are as follows, militarism, religious mania, megalomania, loquacity, homicidal mania, imperialism, neuronism, English cartoon, sound and fury, illustration, from Punch, London, Kaiser, is all my high seas fleet safely locked up, Admiral von Dirpidesi, practically all, sire, Kaiser, then let the starvation of England begin, English cartoon the flight that failed illustration, from Punch, London, the Emperor, what, no babes, Sarah, the murderer, alas, sire, none, the Emperor, well, then, no babes, no iron crosses, English cartoon, a fortified town, illustration, from the sketch, London, a little will come, as known to its inhabitants, the little will come, the fortified town according to Germany, South African cartoon, no family resemblance illustration, from the Cape Times. Cape Town, South Africa, the German eagle tearfully, as bird to bird surely you won't desert me, the American eagle, desert you, I'm an eagle, not a vulture, the chances of peace and the problem of Poland by J. Ellis Barker from the 19th century and after, Leonard Scott Publishing Company, a century ago, at the Congress of Vienna, the question of Poland proved extremely difficult to solve, it produced dangerous friction among the assembled powers, and threatened to lead to the breakup of the Congress. The position became so threatening that, on the 3rd of January, 1815, Austria, Great Britain, and France felt compelled to conclude a secret separate alliance directed against Prussia and Russia, the allies of Austria and Great Britain in the war against Napoleon. Precautionary troop movements began, and war among the allies might have broken out had not. Shortly afterward, Napoleon quitted Elba and landed in France. Fear of the great Corsican reunited the powers, because of the great and conflicting interests involved. The question of Poland may prove of similar importance and difficulty at the Congress which will conclude the present war. Hence, it seems desirable to consider it carefully and in good time. It is true that the study of the Polish problem does not seem to be very urgent at the present moment. In view of the slow progress of the Allies in the East and West, it appears that the war will be long drawn out. Still. It is quite possible that it will come to an early and sudden end. Austria-Hungary is visibly tiring of the hopeless struggle into which she was plunged by Germany, 
and which hitherto has brought her nothing but loss, disgrace, and disaster. After all, the war is bound to end earlier or later in an Austro-German defeat, and if it should be fought to the bitter end Austria-Hungary will obviously suffer far more severely than will Germany, a protracted war, which would lead nearly to the lasting impoverishment of Germany would bring about the economic annihilation of impecunious Austria. Besides, while a complete defeat would cause to Germany only the loss of territories in the east, west, and north which are largely inhabited by disaffected Poles, Frenchmen, and Danes, and would not very greatly reduce the purely German population of Germany, it would probably result in the dissolution of the dual monarchy, which lacks a homogeneous population, and it might lead to Austria's disappearance as a great state. If complete disaster should overwhelm the empire of Francis Joseph, Hungary would undoubtedly make herself independent, the dual monarchy would become a heap of wreckage, and in the end the German parts of Austria would probably become a German province, Vienna a provincial Prussian town, the proud Habsburgs subordinate German princelings, if, on the other hand, Austria-Hungary should make quickly a separate peace with her opponents, she would presumably lose only the Polish parts of Galicia to the new kingdom of Poland and Bosnia and Herzegovina to Serbia, and she might receive most satisfactory compensation for these losses by the acquisition of the German parts of Silesia and by the adherence of the largely Roman Catholic South German states, which have far more in common with Austria than with Protestant Prussia. As a result of the war, Austria-Hungary might be greatly strengthened at Germany's cost, provided the monarchy makes peace without delay. In any case, only by an early peace can the bulk of the lands of the Habsburgs be preserved for the ruling house, and can national bankruptcy be avoided. There is an excellent and most valuable precedent for such action on Austria's part. Bismarck laid down the essence of statesmanship in the maxim, Salus Publicus Supreme Alex, and defined in his memoirs the binding power of treaties of alliance by the phrase, Ultra Posse Nemo Obligator, referring particularly to the Austro-German alliance. He wrote that, no nation is obliged to sacrifice its existence on the altar of treaty fidelity. Before long the dual monarchy may take advantage of Bismarck's teaching. After all, it cannot be expected that she should go beyond her strength, and that she should ruin herself for the sake of Germany, especially as she cannot thereby save that country from inevitable defeat. Austria-Hungary should feel particularly strongly impelled to ask for peace without delay as her recent and most disastrous defeat in Serbia has exasperated the people and threatens to lead to risings and revolts not only in the Slavonic parts of the monarchy but also in Hungary. Civil war may be said to be in sight. The dual monarchy is threatened besides by the dubious and expectant attitude of Italy and Romania. If Austria-Hungary should hesitate much longer to make peace, Italy and Romania may find a sufficient pretext for war and may join the Entente powers. Italy naturally desires to acquire the valuable Italian portions of Austria-Hungary on her borders, and Romania the very extensive Romanian parts of the dual monarchy adjoining that kingdom. To both powers it would be disastrous if Austria-Hungary should make peace before they had staked out their claims by militarily occupying the territory which they covet. Both states may therefore be expected to abandon their neutrality and to invade Austria-Hungary without delay as soon as they hear that that country seriously contemplates entering upon peace negotiations. It follows that if Austria-Hungary wishes to withdraw from the stricken field she must open negotiations with the utmost secrecy and conclude them with the utmost speed. It is clear that if Italy and Romania should be given the much-desired opportunity of joining the Entente powers, 
The dual monarchy would lose not only Polish Galicia and Serbian Bosnia and Herzegovina but Romanian Transylvania and the Banat, with about 5.000.000 inhabitants, and the largely Italian Trentino, Istria, and Dalmatia, with at least 1.000.000 people, as well. These vast losses would probably lead to the total dismemberment of the state, for the remaining subject nationalities would also demand their freedom. Self-preservation is the first law and the first duty of individuals and of states. It is therefore conceivable, and is indeed only logical, that Austria-Hungary will conclude overnight a separate peace. If she should take that wise and necessary step, isolated Germany would either have to give up the unequal struggle or fight on single-handed. In the latter case, her defeat would no doubt be rapid. It seems, therefore, quite possible that the end of the war may be as sudden as was its beginning. Hence. The consideration of the Polish question seems not only full but urgent. From the very beginning Prussia, Austria, and Russia treated Poland as a corpus vile, and cut it up like a cake, without any regard to the claims, the rights, and the protests of the Poles themselves. Although history only mentions three partitions, there were in reality seven. There were those of 1772, 1793, and 1795 already referred to, and these were followed by a redistribution of the Polish territories in 1807, 1809, and 1815. In none of these were the inhabitants consulted or even considered. The Congress of Vienna established the independence of Krakow, but Austria-Hungary, asserting that she considered herself threatened by the existence of that tiny state, seized it in 1846, while Prussia, Austria, and Russia, considering that might was right had divided Poland among themselves, regardless of the passionate protests of the inhabitants. England had remained a spectator, but not a passive one, of the tragedy. She viewed the action of the Allies with strong disapproval, but although she gave frank expression to her sentiments, she did not actively interfere. After all, no English interests were involved in the partition. It was not her business to intervene. Besides, she could not successfully have opposed single-handed the joint action of the three powerful partner states, especially as France, under the weak Louis XV, held aloof. However, English statesmen refused to consider as valid the five partitions which took place before and during the Napoleonic era. The Treaty of Charmond of 1814 created the Concert of Europe. At the Congress of Vienna of 1815 the frontiers of Europe were fixed by general consent, as Prussia, Austria, and Russia refused to recreate an independent Poland. England's opposition would have broken up the concert, and might have led to further wars. Unable to prevent the injustice done to Poland by her opposition, and anxious to maintain the unity of the powers and the peace of the world, England consented at last to consider the partition of Poland as a fait accompli, and formally recognized it, especially as the Treaty of Vienna assured the Poles of just and fair treatment under representative institutions. Article I of the Treaty of Vienna stated expressly, Els Polonias, Sujes Respectives de la Russie, de l'Autriche et de l'Oprus, obtained round in representation et des institutions nationales regles de personal existence politique que chacun des gouvernements aquels ils appartiennent jugera utile et convenable de leur quarter. By signing the Treaty of Vienna, England recognized not explicitly, but merely implicitly, the partition of Poland and she did so unwillingly and under protest. Lord Kastlerak stated in a circular note addressed to Russia, Prussia, and Austria, that it had always been England's desire that an independent Poland, 
possessing a dynasty of its own, should be established, which, separating Austria, Russia, and Prussia, should act as a buffer state between them, that, failing its creation, the Poles should be reconciled to being dominated by foreigners, by just and liberal treatment which alone would make them satisfied. His note, which is most remarkable for its far-sightedness, wisdom, force, and restraint, was worded as follows, the undersigned, His Britannic Majesty's Principal Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs and Plenipotentiary to the Congress of Vienna, in desiring the present note concerning the affairs of Poland may be entered on the protocol, has no intention to revive controversy or to impede the progress of the arrangements now in contemplation. His only object is to avail himself of this occasion of temporarily recording, by the express orders of his court, the sentiments of the British government upon a European question of the utmost magnitude and influence. The undersigned has had occasion in the course of the discussions at Vienna, for reasons that need not be gone into, repeatedly and earnestly to oppose himself, on the part of his court, to the erection of a Polish kingdom in union with and making part of the imperial crown of Russia, the desire of his court to see an independent power, more or less considerable in extent, established in Poland under a distinct dynasty, and as an intermediate state between the three great monarchies, has uniformly been avowed, and if the undersigned has not been directed to press such a measure, it has only arisen from a disinclination to excite, under all the apparent obstacles to such an arrangement, expectations which might prove an unavailing source of discontent among the Poles, the Emperor of Russia continuing, as it is declared, still to adhere to his purpose of erecting that part of the Duchy of Warsaw which is to fall under his Imperial Majesty's dominion, together with his other Polish provinces, either in whole or in part, into a kingdom under the Russian scepter, and their Austrian and Prussian majesties, the sovereigns most immediately interested, having ceased to oppose themselves to such an arrangement the undersigned adhering, nevertheless, to all his former representations on this subject has only sincerely to hope that none of those evils may result from this measure to the tranquility of the North, and to the general equilibrium of Europe, which it has been his painful duty to anticipate but in order to obviate as far as possible such consequences, it is of essential importance to establish the public tranquility throughout the territories which formerly constituted the Kingdom of Poland, upon some solid and liberal basis of common interest, by applying to all, however various may be their political institutions, a congenial and conciliatory system of administration. Experience has proved that it is not by counteracting all their habits and usages as a people that either the happiness of the Poles, or the peace of that important portion of Europe, can be preserved, a fruitless attempt, too long persevered in by institutions for into their manner and sentiments to make them forget their existence, and even language, as a people, has been sufficiently tried and failed, it has only tended to excite a sentiment of discontent and self-degradation, and can never operate otherwise than to provoke commotion and to awaken them to a recollection of past misfortunes, the undersigned, for these reasons and in cordial concurrence with the general sentiments which he has had the satisfaction to observe the respective cabinets entertained on this subject, ardently desires that the illustrious monarchs to whom the destinies of the Polish nation are confided, may be induced, before they depart from Vienna, to take an engagement with each other to treat as Poles, under whatever form of political institution they may think fit to govern them, the portions of that nation that may be placed under their respective sovereignties. The knowledge of such a determination will best tend to conciliate the general sentiment to their rule, and to do honor to the several sovereigns in the eyes of their Polish subjects. 
this course will consequently afford the surest prospect of their living peaceably and contentedly under their respective governments. This dispatch was sent on the 12th of January, 1815, exactly a century ago. The warnings were not heeded and the past century has been filled with sorrow for the Poles and with risings and revolutions, as Lord Castlereagh clearly foretold, in Western Russia, in Eastern Prussia, and in Galicia there dwell about area code 20000000 Poles. If the war should end, as it is likely to end, in a Russian victory, a powerful kingdom of Poland will arise. According to the carefully worded manifesto of the Grand Duke the United Poles will receive full self-government under the protection of Russia. They will be enabled to develop their nationality, but it seems scarcely likely that they will receive entire and absolute independence. Their position will probably resemble that of Quebec in Canada, or of Bavaria in Germany, and if the Russians and Poles act wisely they will live as harmoniously together as do the French-speaking habitants of Quebec and the English-speaking men of the other provinces of Canada. Russia need not fear that Poland will make herself entirely independent, and only the most hog-headed and short-sighted Poles can wish for complete independence. Poland, having developed extremely important manufacturing industries, requires large free markets for their output. Her natural market is Russia, for Germany has industrial centers of her own. She can expect to have the free use of the precious Russian markets only as long as she forms part of that great state. At present, a spirit of the hardiest goodwill prevails between Russians and Poles. The old quarrels and grievances have been forgotten in the common struggle. The moment is most auspicious for the resurrection of Poland, while Prussia has been guilty of the partition of Poland. Russia is largely to blame for the repeated revolts and insurrection of her Polish citizens. When the peace conditions come up for discussion at the Congress which will bring the present war to an end and that event may be nearer than most men think the problem of Poland will be one of the greatest difficulty and importance. Austria-Hungary has comparatively little interest in retaining her Poles. The Austrian Poles dwell in Galicia outside the great rampart of the Carpathian Mountains, which form the natural frontier of the dual monarchy toward the northeast. The loss of Galicia, with its oil fields and mines, may be regrettable to Austria-Hungary, but it will not affect her very seriously. To Germany, on the other hand, the loss of the Polish districts will be a fearful blow. The supreme importance which Germany attaches to the Polish problem may be seen from this, that Bismarck thought it the only question which could lead to an open breach between Germany and Austria-Hungary. According to Crispi's memoirs, Bismarck said to the Italian statesman on the 17th of September, 1877, there could be but one cause for a breach in the friendship that unites Austria and Germany, and that would be a disagreement between the two governments concerning Polish policy. If a Polish rebellion should break out and Austria should lend it her support, we should be obliged to assert ourselves. We cannot permit the reconstruction of a Catholic kingdom so near at hand. It would be on northern France. We have one France to look to already and a second would become the natural ally of the first, and we should find ourselves entrapped between two enemies. The resurrection of Poland would injure us in other ways as well. It could not come about without the loss of a part of our territory. We cannot possibly relinquish either Posen or Danzig, because the German Empire would remain exposed on the Russian frontier, and we should lose an outlet on the Baltic. In the event of Germany's defeat a large slice of Poland, including the wealthiest parts of Silesia, with gigantic coal mines, ironworks, and sea, would be taken away from her, and if the Poles should recover their ancient province of West Prussia, with Danzig, Prussia's hold upon East Prussia, 
with Konigsberg, would be threatened. The loss of her Polish districts would obviously greatly reduce Germany's military strength and economic power. It may therefore be expected that Germany will move heaven and earth against the recreation of the Kingdom of Poland, and that she will strenuously endeavor to create differences between Russia and her allies. The statesmen of Europe should therefore, in good time, firmly make up their minds as to the future of Poland. J. Ellis Barker, The Redemption of Europe by Alfred Edelweiss, from King Albert's book. Don't Templareth series under which banner? It was night beyond all nights that ever were. The cross was broken. Bloodstained might moved like a tiger from its lair, and all that heaven had died to quell awoke, and mingled earth with hell. For Europe, if it held a creed, held it through custom, not through faith. Chaos returned, in dream and deed. Right was a legend, love a wraith, and that from which the world began was less than even the best in man. God in the image of a snake dethroned that dream. Too fond, too blind, the man-shaped God whose heart could break, live, die, and triumph with mankind, a super snake, a juggernaut, dethroned the highest of human thought, the lists were set, the eternal foe within us as without grew strong, by many a supercell blow blurring the lines of right and wrong in art and thought, till naught seemed true but that soul-slaughtering cry of new, new wreckage of the shines we made through centuries of forgotten tears. We knew not where their scorn had laid our master. Twice a thousand years had dulled the uncapricious Sunday manifold worlds obscured the one, obscured the reign of law. Our stay, our compass through this darkening sea. The one sure light, the one sure way, the one firm base of liberty, the one firm road that men have trod through chaos to the throne of God. Choose me, a hundred legions cried, dishonor or the instant sword. Ye chose, ye met that bloodstained tide. A little kingdom kept its word, and, dying, cried across the night, Hear us, O earth, we chose the right, whose is the victory? Though ye stood alone against the unmeasured foe, by all the tears, by all the blood that flowed, and had not ceased to flow, by all the legions that ye hurled, that, throw the thunder-shaken world, by the old that had not where to arrest, by the lands laid waste and hearths defiled, by every lacerated breast, and every mutilated child, Whose is the victory? Answer ye, who, dying, smiled at tyranny, under the sky's triumphal arch the glories of the dawn begin, our dead, our shadowy armies march on now, in silence, through Berlin, dumb shadows, tattered, blood-stained ghosts but cast by what swift following ghosts, and answer, England, at thy side, throw seas of blood, throw mists of tears, thou that for liberty hast died and livest, to the end of years, and answer, Earth, far off, I hear the paeans of a happier sphere, the trumpet blown at marathon resounded over earth and sea, but burning angel lips had blown the trumpets of thy liberty, for who, beside thy dead, could deem the faith, for which they died, a dream, earth has not been the same since then, Europe from thee received a soul, once nations moved in law, like men, as members of a mightier whole, till wars were ended, in that day. So shall our children's children say, Germany will end the war only when a peace treaty shall assure her power by Maximilian Harden Maximilian Harden, who in the following article sets forth the ends which Germany is striving to accomplish in the war, is the George Bernard Shaw of Germany. He is considered the leading German editor and an expert in Germany on foreign politics. As editor and proprietor of Dieselkunft, his fiery, brooding spirit and keen insight and wit, coupled with powers of satire and caricature, 
made him a solitary and striking independent figure in the German press years before the other newspapers of Germany dared to criticize or attack the government or the persons at the head of it. After the dismissal of Prince Bismarck by the present Kaiser, Harden not only saw, but constantly and audaciously criticized, the weaknesses in the character of the emperor. For this dangerous undertaking he was three times brought to trial for Los Majeste, and spent a year as a prisoner in a Prussian fortress. In 1907 he figured in a libel suit brought by General Kuno von Moltke, late military governor of Berlin, who, together with Count Zuehlenberg and Count Wilhelm von Hohenau, one of the emperor's adjutants, had been mentioned by Harden in his paper as members of the so-called Camarilla or Round Table that sought to influence the emperor's political actions by subtle manipulations. He was sentenced to four months' imprisonment, but appealed the case and was let off two years later with a fine of 150. In recently publishing the German article which is herewith translated the German Neuvorker Review carefully disclaimed any agreement with the sentiments therein expressed by Harden, which, it wanted out, must be regarded only as typical of German public opinion as is George Bernard Shaw of public opinion in England, the scorners of war, the blonde, black, and great children who have been defiling his name with syrupy tongues of lofty humanity and with slanderous scoldings, all have become silent, or else they snort soldiers' songs, annihilate in confused little essays the allied powers arrayed against us, entreat a civilized world culture while juggling for mere turkey heads, to please grant us permission to do heavy and cruel deeds, to wage fierce and headlong war. Already they seem prepared to answer absolutely and unqualifiedly in the affirmative Luther's question whether men of war also can be considered in a state of grace. They write and talk much about the great scourge of war. That is all quite true. But we should also bear in mind how much greater is the scourge which is fended off by war. The sum and substance of the matter is this. In looking upon the office of war one must not consider how it strangles, burns, destroys. For that is what the simple eyes of children do which do not further watch the surgeon when he chops off a hand or saws off a leg, which do not see or perceive that it is a matter of saving the entire body. So we must look upon the office of war and of the sword with the eyes of men, and understand why it strangles and why it wreaks cruel deeds. Then it will justify itself and prove of its own accord that it is an office divine in itself, and as necessary and full to the world as is eating, drinking, or any other work but that some there are who abuse the office of war, who strangle and destroy without need, out of sheer wantonness that is not the fault of the office, but of the person. Is there any office, work, or thing so good that wicked and wanton persons will not abuse it? The organ tone of such words as these at last rolls forth once more in their native land, therefore cease the pitiful attempts to excuse Germany's action, no longer well to strangers, who do not care to hear you telling them how dear to us were the smiles of peace we had smeared like rouge upon our lips, and how deeply we regret in our hearts that the treachery of conspirators dragged us, unwilling, into a forced war. Cease, you publicists, your wordy war against hostile brothers in the profession, whose superiority you cannot scold away, and who merely smile while they pick up, out of your laboriously stirred porridge slowly warmed over a flame of borrowed alcohol the crumbs on which their selfishness is to choke. That national selfishness does not seem a duty to you, but a sin, is something you must conceal from foreign eyes. Cease, also, you popular writers, the degraded scolding of enemies that does not emanate from passion but out of greedy hankering for the applause of the masses, and which continually nauseates us amid the piety of this hour. 
because our statement failed to discover and foil shrewd plans of deception is no reason why we may hoist the flag of most pious morality. Not as weak-willed blunderers have we undertaken the fearful risk of this war. We wanted it, because we had to wish it and could wish it. May the tutan devil throttle those whiners whose pleas for excuses make us ludicrous in these hours of lofty experience. We do not stand, and shall not place ourselves, before the court of Europe. Our power shall create new law in Europe. Germany strikes, if it conquers new realms for its genius. The priesthood of all the gods will sing songs of praise to the good war. Only he who was specially trained for a race of troops may go along into the field. Only the man versed in statecraft should be allowed to participate in the talk about the results of war. Not he who has out yonder proved an unworthy diplomat, nor the dilettante loafer sprayed with the perfume of volatile emotions. Manhood liability to military service requires manhood suffrage. That question may rest for the time being, likewise the desire for equality of that right shall not be argued today. But common sense should warn against the assumption of an office without the slightest special preliminary training. Politics is an art that can be mastered not in the leisure hours of the brain, but only by the passionate, self-sacrificing devotion of a whole lifetime. Now seek around you. We are at the beginning of a war the development and duration of which are incalculable, and in which up to date no foe has been brought to his knees, to guide the sword to its goal. Tom, Dick, and Harry, poet arrogance and Professor Crumb advertise their prowess in the newspaper advice and assistance. Brave folk, whose knowledge concerning this new realm of their endeavor emanates solely from that same newspaper, because they have for three months been busily reading their morn.